0: The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. We are continuing in our series this morning, so if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and open them up, we're going to be in the second part of the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 22, you know, it's uh, it's fall here in California, right? It kind of feels like it this morning. I notice those of you who are sitting in the sun or by the the heaters are smiling more than the people who are sitting in the shade. They're still a little cold this morning. And and as I was thinking of fall, for me it always brings back memories of of high school sports. I, I played v- basketball in high school, and it was about this time of year when when practice would begin. And I when I think back of my high school years, some of my fondest memories are those memories of playing sports with my friends and the practices and the travels and the games and all those fun times that, that happened. And there was a thing as, as I was thinking back this week to those years, there was always something when I played high school basketball that drove me nuts. Like now looking back like 20 years later on it, it's like, oh, that's what my coach was doing, right? But as a high school kid, it, it drove me nuts, right? Because you go to play basketball and what do you want to do? You want to shoot. Right? You want to pass. You want, you want to play basketball. And our coach always had this thing near the end of practice that we should run. I guess running's important when it comes to basketball, right? And we're like, Coach, can we just shoot? No, you need to run. But it drove me, not like, okay, I, I got, okay, we need to run. But how he would do, what he would have everyone do is everyone would line up underneath one basket and he would call someone out and he would say, Right, so and so is going to shoot five free throws. However many free throws they miss, that's how many suicide sprints you need to run, right? And for me, I was, I was like, hey, if it was one of our best players, I was all in favor of this. I'm like, this is great, this guy's gonna make all five, we just, I'll just sit down right now, he's on it. And then he'd call like the backup to the backup to the backup center, you know, and you're like, oh boy, here we go. And I hated it because I was like, okay, I get if I miss a shot, then I have to run. But why do I have to run? Because someone else missed a shot. Like, that's not fair, right? I, I, I want if I miss my shot, then I should run. If he misses his shot, he should run. That's how life works, right? I'm my own, he's his own. And, I, and looking back now, I get it. What our coach was trying to do was to get this understanding in our 16-year-old heads, which is hard even for us as adults to get, is that you exist not just on your own, but as part of something bigger than yourself. And you're not out there as an individual, you're out there together as a team. It's not just five people playing together, it's one team playing together. And what one person does affects the other person. And that's I think the challenge of every coach, right? Is to help the individual players understand that they exist beyond just themselves but as a part of something else. Well, this passage here this morning helps us see that this truth is true for us as followers of Jesus. You exist as a follower of Jesus beyond just yourself, and you are a part of something bigger. When you follow Jesus, you became a part of something greater than yourself, and that thing is the church. And Paul's going to look at how unity in the church is expressed and how unity in the church amongst God's people is a shining light in our world. And so this morning, as we look at Ephesians chapter two, starting at verse 11, we're gonna look at three requirements of unity, three requirements for true unity to happen at any church and certainly at this church as well. Starting at verse 11, the text says this, it's in your printed handouts um, or you can feel free to open your Bible to it as well. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, this first requirement of unity is that it is found only in Jesus. True unity is found only in Jesus. And he goes back here to to something that he's been threading throughout, and that's this Jewish-Gentile divide that has existed. And he's writing primarily to a Gentile audience. That's why he says in verse 11 that you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Now I get in our world today, that seems like a very random term to start throwing around at people, right? You've probably never been insulted this by someone as you're walking down the street. But circumcision for the Jewish community, that was the physical sign of their status before God. It was almost an arrogance that would carry it out, so much so that they would refer to themselves. So to call someone the group of the uncircumcision, this is a derogatory. They would look down as they would hold their heads up. These are you people over there. We are the people who are of the circumcision. You are not. Notice that he says it's the circumcision made of the flesh by hands. Because scripture talks about how it's not physical acts that save or don't save, but the physical was supposed to be representation of the heart, of a heart surrendered to God. And so he's showing here that this kind of Jewish, almost arrogance you would as to their status. But then he he, he looks here at five disadvantages. He, He nails them off real quick. Five disadvantages that Gentiles faced before Jesus. He says this, verse 12, remember, remember who you were. That time you were separated from Christ. Christ is the Messiah, the Israel's Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. He said, you were, you were outside of that. You were Gentiles and, and Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The, the Jewish lineage would be passed down through birth. And so if you were born a Gentile, you were born outside of the people of Israel. You are strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants, looking back at those that God made with Noah, with Abraham, with David, were primarily intended and made to the Jewish, Jewish family, to the people of Israel. And because of this, he says, you had no hope. The hope of the Jewish people was their Messiah. And because it was, you had no hope, because that wasn't your Messiah. And because of that, you were without God in the world's kind of like levels it real quick. Like this is your status before Jesus. You had no hope and you were out God, but verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, they said, who have been far off, been brought near. He's picking up here on terminology from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19, looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come, it says, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. See, all these disadvantages that Paul highlights of the Gentiles, all these disadvantages are immediately wiped away once Jesus comes. The one who wipes away these disadvantages, the one who can bring unity is Jesus himself. As we're going to look at in verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace. Jesus is the one who can bring unity amongst such a diverse group of people who gather together and call themselves the church. Now, it's important for us as followers of Jesus who are part of a local gathered community called the church, it's important for us that we make sure that it is around Jesus that we are united, not something else. That Jesus is what truly unites us, that Jesus is at the center, the focus of all that we are in our church, not something else. That nothing else competes with Jesus as our goal or as our mission. Because if something else competes with Jesus as the thing that unites us and brings us together, ultimately it will lead to distraction and it will draw us away from the purpose that God has for us. Every, Every summer is one of my favorite sporting events in the month of July, and it's called the Tour de France. The Tour de France, I've talked before about how I'm a cyclist and, and I love the Tour de France. And one of the things that, that if you're a casual observer of cycling that you may not realize is, is how much cycling is actually a team sport. It's kind of an irony, right? Because there's one guy who stands up at the podium at the end of the race, but it's a team sport very much so. And this, in that when teams go into the race, there's a few teams who have one goal and one focus in mind. And that's that this one person and there's eight other guys on the team, there's nine on the team, but this one person is going to win. The rest of your eight jobs, you have one job. It's to make sure he does well. Everything about your race is to make sure this one guy does well. So you go and get all the water bottles for him. You stop and you take his jacket and you drop it off. Everything is revolved around so this one guy can do well. Now, what invariably happens in races like this, as you can imagine, is one of those other eight guys might say, Yeah, but no, I want to do my own thing. Right, And this has played out in cycling before. There was a famous image a few years ago of a guy who was at the front of the race and his manager pulled up alongside in the car and told him, hey, you need to slow down because your team leader needs your help. And he's riding up in the front of the race, shaking his fist, slamming on his handlebars, screaming at his manager while he's leading the race because he's like, this is what I want to do. But his manager's saying, listen, we're all about one thing. And if each of us have our own thing, it sidetracks us from the most important thing. See, Jesus is that central focus. Jesus is that central thing that brings us unity, not these other things that could be around. See, where where the church can be led astray and where we could be led astray is there's other things that have a semblance that, that in and of themselves are good, but if we make them the thing around which we find unity, that this is our core, it ultimately leads us astray if it's not Jesus. See, it's right to want to live a holy life, to live a life free from sin. But when the church becomes just about how holy we can be, we suddenly become very legalistic in our mindset very judgmental of people who are not believers. We circle the wagons. We want nothing to do with outside influences and we don't love anyone except for those who are part of our group. And that's done with intentions that we wanna look like Jesus, but suddenly we're cut off from the mission of Jesus to the world because we're so focused on how we live our lives that we've lost sight of something else. Another thing that's happened in, in churches, especially this is seen in, in many larger churches, of our day is that ministry effectiveness becomes the the most important thing. And people are run over and used and tossed to the side. And the, the excuse is, yeah, but look, people are coming to faith. We're gonna throw people out to the side. We're gonna hurt people. But as long as something good is being done, we'll throw other people out. We've seen this many times before in churches over the battle of music right? Do we use the drums or not? Do we only sing hymns or not? And Christians have split over this because that's the most important thing. We've seen this over Bible translations, right? It's either this translation or this or this, and this is what holds us together. We've seen this over preaching styles. Well, a pastor has to preach this way or it's not the right thing. And these are the things that so many times, these are good things that we can have our thoughts about here's the thing, if as a follower of Jesus, as a church, if we find our unity, our core on any of these things other than Jesus, it ultimately drifts us astray. I think one of, the te- one of the ways that we can test this in our own lives is how do we think of Christians, maybe at this church, maybe at other churches, how do we think of Christians who disagree with us on these things? How do we think of Christians who disagree with us on what we would say is the best way to preach or the right kind of music for the church or the best Bible translation, the best way to do ministry? How do we deal with them? How do we think about them? Because if we start thinking with judgment and stuff, we're starting to see that we've raised these things to the level above Jesus and we're, we're placing actually an idol of something about ministry ahead of who Jesus is. So Jesus is the one on whom we should be united around, not any other thing, but Jesus is the source of our unity. He expands on this idea of Jesus being the one who brings us together in verse 14. He says this, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near." The second requirement for for unity to be seen in the church is that it transcends human boundaries. Unity in Jesus and true unity in the church transcends the human boundaries that we may place in its way. There's a central theme to these four or five verses that starts off right the middle and carries its way through. And it's this theme of peace. This idea of peace that's brought about is, is seen in Jesus Himself. He himself is our peace, and then how that peace works out in our lives and in our world. Now, peace is not just an absence of conflict. It certainly is that, right? And if you're a parent with sibling with multiple kids, right, maybe the cry of your home sometime is: can I just get some peace and quiet around here, please? Right? And the parent's are like, can you just stop yelling at each other for five seconds? My goodness sakes, just calm down. Sometimes we might think of peace as just, well, people aren't showing up and screaming at each other, so it's peace. No, peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It's living into wholeness and wellness. It's, it's the, the Old Testament idea. The word is shalom. It's, it's this perfect whole relationship. Peace is more than just the absence of negative, but it's the presence of perfect harmony and unity. And what he's saying here is through Jesus, we first have peace with God. Each and every one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have peace with God, meaning that you are now in a relationship with God, that through his body, he killed the hostility and reconciled you to God. See, reconciliation, it goes beyond just God has forgiven you. Yes, but you have been reconciled. You've been made into a right and perfect and whole relationship now with God. And we have lived into that peace, but he doesn't stop there. He says, if you've experienced peace with God, which every Christian has, he says, it must be lived out in your relationships with others. All right, vertical peace, having peace with God must be expressed in living out a life of peace and unity with the people around us. And he focuses here on this passage in these verses on the unity that now exists in this peace that now exists between Jew and Gentile audiences because of what Jesus has done for us. I've been pointing this out. If you've been here several Sundays in a row or you've listened, I've been pointing this out how Paul keeps highlighting you and then we, and then you, and then we, because he's bringing it together here to show all these differences that Jew and Gentile had, but now are brought together and made one in Jesus. He says that there was this dividing wall of hostility. This dividing wall, this refers both in a physical sense as well as in a metaphorical sense. There was a legitimate dividing wall in the Jewish temple where Gentiles could not go. It was Jewish only could go beyond there. But it represented so much more. The barriers that, that once represented and hindered unity have been torn down in Jesus. And notice his goal that he came to do, that he might create in himself one new man or some translations will put one new humanity in himself. See, he's reconciled us to God. What Jesus has done through the cross breaks down any human barrier that we may use to separate and to divide people. Jesus has broken it down. Galatians 3:28 a passage similar to this and well known says that in Jesus there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he's obviously not meaning that like literally you stop being Jewish or Gentile or you stop being male or female in Jesus. But what he's doing in that passage, and he's, he's doing a similar thing here in Ephesians 2, is he's addressing the barriers, the common barriers that people thought, the divisions of people in the world. And in that time, especially amongst a Jewish mindset, the divisions of Jew and Gentile, of if you were slave or free, and if you were male or female were the three most important things about you. In fact, it said that a Jewish man would then pray at that time, God, thank you for making me a man, a Jew, and a free person. Right? That was so core to their identity because they saw, if you weren't that, you were less than me. There was this arrogance about them. And Paul here in Ephesians 2 focuses in on one one boundary that was causing divisions amongst the church in Ephesus, divisions amongst the church at that time, and to this day still can cause divisions amongst the church. And he dials in and focuses on this division of race, of Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile was one of the primary racial divisions and racial distinctions of the ancient worlds. And this issue, has been and has come back to the forefront of our national conversation the last few years. And maybe for you, maybe for some of us, this is a hard and uncomfortable, but it's a necessary conversation because the Bible pushes us there, right? If what this passage is saying is true, right? If Jesus in himself has killed the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile as a model for all of humanity, if this passage is true, then what, the Bible clearly is saying is that racism in any form is a sin, that racism is a sin. It is a violation, a denial of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and a denial of what he came to do. He came to destroy the hostility that existed and to unite all people of all backgrounds, of all ethnicities under one in him to create for himself one new humanity. We can't say that it's just a cultural preference or it's my family background. No, we have to name it for what it is. Racism is a sin. It goes against the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the reality is the American Christian church has not always done a very good job on this issue. We don't have a great track record here as as an American church. In fact, you may not be aware of this, but did you know the largest evangelical, that's what we are, a non-denominational evangelical church, the largest evangelical denomination in our country started over a dispute. And it's because there was one group that said, well, if you're going to be a missionary, then you probably shouldn't be a slave owner. And others, people said, no, you can own slaves and then still be a missionary. And they divided, literally the largest denomination in our country divided and started because they wanted to still have slaves. That's the history in our world. Now, they have since repented and publicly said that was wrong and that was sinful, but that's the history of the church in America. We haven't always done a great job at it. But we have to see, we have to catch Jesus's vision for what he's saying in this passage, that God's heart has always been to be a God for all people. Not for Jews or for Gentiles, not for one race or another. God's heart has always been to be a God for all people. When we look forward in Revelation and we get this picture of heaven, what will heaven look like? It's a picture in Revelation 7:9. It says that, that he sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. See, the community of God's people is multicultural, multi-ethnic and multilingual, both now on earth and for eternity in heaven. That's who God came to save. That's who God's people are. This may be complex and difficult depending on your perspectives, your backgrounds, and racism is certainly in our country and in our world complex and multifaceted. is not a simple thing. I certainly can't solve it with one sermon. I really wish I could. I, w- I would be glad to do so and go anywhere else and solve it with one sermon, but, but, but we can't and I can't. The starting point, though, the starting point, I think, for us, not the end point, not the only thing. But the starting point is for us, I think, to search our own hearts. Because if racism is a sin, then we need to speak of it as a sin, just like we would any other sin in the church. And if racism is a violation of what Jesus has done on the cross, we need to look at our own hearts and our own lives. There's hidden sins that oftentimes we are blind to because of just our own sinfulness, right? We don't see it about ourselves and we need to allow the Holy Spirit to search us even on this area. Are there prejudices? Are there things in my life? Do I treat, do I judge? Do I discern people differently based on how they look, based on the color of their skin? Because if we are followers of Jesus living into this new life that he has for us as the church, the answer to that should be no. And when we feel that, we should be quick to repent, quick to ask forgiveness, quick to ask God to change our hearts into what his heart is. Because his heart is a heart for all people. When we look forward to heaven and we see this picture, I think it's an irony, because if you don't love God's people being from all races and backgrounds and tribes and languages, the reality is you won't like heaven very much then. So you better get used to it now. Learn to embrace it now, because when you go to heaven, that's what it will be. I was reading last week how I believe, I don't know if it's current now, but certainly within the next 10 years, the largest Christian continent in the world is going to be Africa. We'll have the most, the highest number of Christians in the world. Most Christians don't look like you do in the mirror. They probably look different. There's nations all over the world. And we need to get this vision and then live into it in our own lives of Jesus wanting to change all people, to bring all people to himself, no matter their backgrounds. He presses into this and says, he's he's transcended human boundaries. He's divided this Jew-Gentile distinction. All racial distinctions have been wiped away. There are now one in Jesus, one humanity in him. And then he applies it specifically to the church. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, See, the third requirement for unity is that it's displayed in the church. That unity needs to be on display in the church, in the gathering of God's people together. He goes through multiple metaphors here. He kind of switches images real quick to describe this now work of Jesus Christ and how this is lived out in the church. He first says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God right? We are fellow citizens. We're no longer strangers and aliens. He had just talked about this, that we found ourselves as Gentiles outside, right? Outside of the family. We were far off. He's saying that distinction no longer exists. You no longer write that. You are now fellow citizens. We are all God's people who are followers of Jesus. And as a fellow citizen, you have all the rights, all the privileges now that come with it. You are not second-class citizens. All are one in Jesus, he then moves from this idea of citizenship to this, member, this idea of being part of the household, right? He says that we are part of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now remember that at this time, most of the New Testament was still being written or not yet written. So what he's saying by talking about the apostles and prophets is he's saying, this is the authoritative teaching of who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's built on that with the very cornerstone, the most important part being Jesus himself. See, the cornerstone would have been that first thing that was laid down on the ground and everything else that was going from there was lined up according to this stone. So does the, is this a straight line? The answer would be, well, how does it line up with the cornerstone? Is this level? Well, how does it line up with the cornerstone? And once that stone is laid, it cannot be moved and everything else then adjusts around the one piece because that's the corner, that's where everything else is measured off of. And for the church, that is Jesus. Everything else is aligned off of who Jesus is, what he has done and what he says for us to do. He moves from this idea of of this household and then he moves into like the structure itself, into being a temple. You're not just a part of the family, but you are a temple, When he talks about the temple year, he's not thinking of what they would have still known in that day of this large structure in Jerusalem and all of the temple courts. It would have dominated the skyline. Any person who had ever visited Jerusalem would know exactly what he was talking about. He's not thinking of this huge building, but he's specifically thinking here of the inner courts, the place where God's presence was said to dwell. Notice he says in verse 22, that in him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. See, the church is to be the holy temple where God's spirit lives. God's presence, is it with you as if you're a follower of Jesus, is God with you each and every day? yes. Yes, he is. God is present with you at home, at school, at work, wherever you go, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But is God's presence, is his spirit here in a unique way when the church gathers and worships together? Yes. There is a special sense in which God's presence is here, that God dwells amongst his people when they gather together and worship him. See, we are being joined together. I love these these ideas, joined together, growing into and being built together. What he's saying is you're not finished yet. The church is now like this finished construction project for us to look at, but we are still, as a church, we should still see ourselves as under construction. We still are growing. We still have room for improvement. We still need to grow each and every one of us as a part of the church so that God's spirit may be more seen here. See, the reality is in Jesus, you are a part of something far bigger than yourself. In Jesus, you're a part of something far bigger than yourself. See, if, you, uh, if you're married, think back to when you were maybe dating your spouse or you were getting to know them. And then for the first kind of time, you went to like a family get together right? You went to a big family get-together. I remember for me, um, my wife and I were were engaged and I went um, to the family Christmas party and there was probably about 30, 35, 40 people. And I'm like the one non-Gruber. It's my wife's main name. The one non-Gruber there, right? No other boyfriends, no other spouses. Like, it's all, all the family, right? And so what are you doing? I think I was like 21, 22 at the time, right? What do you, you just try and like fit in, right? You're like, this is kind of intimidating. There's a lot of people here, right? Like, I don't really know what's going on. And it was Christmas. So I remember like, I'm just going to kind of hang out. I'm going to lay low. I'm going to follow Kristen around and hopefully all will go well. The time came to open presents and Kristen had told me like, you know, cause each family kind of opens presents their unique way. She's like, oh, it's like a free-for-all. It's just people hand out the presents. I'm like, all right, that, that'll be good. I won't be single. That'll be really nice. And so her cousin goes up, Ben's probably 10 or 11 years old at the time. He goes up and he grabs the first present. He goes, this one's for Michael. And he pauses and he looks at me and he goes, Who's Michael? <laughs> Like, who is that guy? He's not a part of our family. Who is this? And then the second person, he goes, this one's for Michael too. Who is this guy? Right? And I'm like sitting over in the corner. I'm like, oh no, oh no. I'm like, I'm feeling so embarrassed, right? And they are so gracious and warm. They actually, her father-in-law and brother-in-law, or my father-in-law and brother-in-law just spent the week with us and we're so excited to have them. We had a great time with them. But the reality is this, that you realize that when you get married, you don't just marry your spouse, you marry their family. Right? Like you're a part of something a lot more than you're like, well, I picked them for this. And a lot more came with it. Right? Some of you were like, a whole lot more came with it. Stop nudging them. Stop. Talk later. Talk later in the car ride home. Right? So you may say, well, I, I, as a Christian, I signed up for Jesus. That's what I wanted. I didn't, I didn't want all of the church with it. Well, guess what? If you signed up for Jesus, you signed up for the church as well. If you follow Jesus, the church comes along with him. It's not like you get Jesus and you can just throw the church aside. I'm like, oh, this part's not important. I just want Jesus. It's like trying to be married and not have this whole new family. So I think this idea of being united around Jesus, of seeing him as so essential and being a part of a faith community like this has such a, an opportunity in our world for a profound influence. See, our world right now, in this time and culture in which we live, they will divide and rage over every little disagreement, right? Anything can be a polarizing issue in our world. The most inconsequential, tiny thing is so polarizing in our world. Our culture has lost the art of gracious disagreement, right? We're experts at everything, or so we claim, because we read an article about it for two minutes on the internet. Right? We, we've divided, and too often that's been true of the church as well, is that we've divided over things that are so inconsequential, that we reflect our culture rather than reflecting Jesus to the world. A divided world needs a united church. And what an opportunity we have as Morgan Hill Bible Church in this community where God has placed us, to represent him by loving and being united to our brothers and sisters in Christ who may come from different backgrounds, who may look different than us, who may vote different than us, who may spend their money different than us, but we are united in Jesus and we love them just the same. It does not divide us. See, for others to see that we are different yet united in Jesus can be a powerful thing in our world. And unity in the church depends on every single one of us, doesn't it? Unity depends on every one of us. If one person messes it up, if one person is disunited, if one person causes it, then it kind of crumbles the whole thing, right? Unity depends on every single member of the church. And so my question for us this morning is, are you living this out in your life? Is your life one of being committed to unity in Jesus, pushing aside those polarizing things that our world says, oh, divide over this, argue over this, but saying, no, no, I don't need to because we're united in Christ. Are you living that out? When people see your life, are they getting this picture of what Jesus has come to do and reconcile not just us to God, but have this unique community of church from all backgrounds, from all walks of life, but united, not because of something we've done, but because of who our savior is because our divided world desperately needs a united church. God, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus. And God, may this truth be true here today, present in our lives. God, if there are patterns of things in our lives, if we are those who cause disagreements over these issues that ultimately fade away in the light of Jesus Christ, would you cause us to be quick to repent of them? God, may our lives and may this church be a shining light for you in this city, in this place that you've placed us because we are united in Jesus. We have peace with God and we have peace with one another. May we be known for that in our community, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.